Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. This week, I have the honor of hosting one of the best game designers in history. Without overstating, I can say that he and his games are the reason I got interested in game design in the first place. And I know many of you feel the same way. At least you have repeatedly asked me to, yeah, to in invite him to the podcast. So if you are wondering now who this mysterious guest might be, let's see at what point of my introduction you will be able to recognize him. So let me start. He is the designer of the game Complex Hearts, <laughs> a version of hearts where you can shoot the moon. And yeah, if you know um, my podcast outro, you know how much I like shooting for the moon. So and do you already have a clue whom I'm talking about? No. Okay, here is another one. He is also the co-designer of the iOS game Card Combat. And is that enough to recognize who we have on the show today? Still not? Okay, I'll give you another one. He is one of the designers of uh, Spectromancer, an online card game. Still no clue? Okay, then let's add some more titles to the list. What about Vampire the Eternal Struggle, TCG? Or Robo Rally? Still not? Okay, <laughs> then may maybe then Netrunner CCG? Does it ring some bells? If you still don't know who I'm talking about, here are some of his more recent games. What about King of Tokyo, Bunny Kingdom, Keyforge, Carnival of Monsters or Artifact, the digital card game? So if you still don't know who I'm talking about or heard at least of any of those games, you should probably stop listening right away and start playing some of those games because they are really awesome and some of them are really industry standards. But there is one more. I kept the big elephant in the room for, uh, yeah, until the end. He is also the designer of Magic the Gathering, which is uh, probably the game I have mentioned more than any other game on this podcast. So please welcome with me our guest of today's episode, uh, Dr. Richard Garfield. Welcome to the show, Richard. Well, uh, that was quite an introduction. Uh, uh, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, um, it's an honor to talk to you. Um, and that's also, it's true, by the way, uh, I really, I mentioned Magic and some of your other games all the time on the podcast as good examples. So um, yeah, it, it really is an honor for me. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, as I said, it's, uh, yeah, it's, always, it's always fun to talk about games and, uh, and it's uh, a pleasure when uh, the things that I've made bring people pleasure. Um, yeah, awesome. So today we want to talk a little bit about the design process of strategy card games for both the physical and um, yeah, the digital market. And since you have been working on games For both markets, I'm very curious to learn more about your approach to game design and the possible differences when creating physical or digital games. But before we get started, maybe you can tell the audience briefly how you got into making your own games in the first place. Uh, sure. Yeah, I've, uh, <clears throat> I've been 
really uh, passionate about games uh, since a, a fairly young age, uh, maybe maybe 13 or 14, I uh, discovered Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, and that blew my mind. Uh, it it was so different than any other game I had ever seen that it raised in my uh, in my thoughts uh, this idea that that uh, there must be a lot of other games, first of all, that I hadn't seen that are just as outlandish. And, uh, and also there was likely a lot to be discovered there. And as I began probing into games more, I, uh, realized that, uh, that, uh, both those things were true, that there was a lot of things I hadn't seen and, and there was a lot left, uh, that you could do. And with my limited budget, I was, uh, put in the position of really designing my own games and modifying the ones I got in order to, uh, satisfy, uh, my gaming urges. Uh, Fairly early on, I decided that games were not a place I should stake my future, but rather keep as a hobby. And and it just uh, because it is really hard to back in the day, at least it was very hard to make it as a game designer. Um, and and so instead, I uh, uh, decided to go into mathematics, um, which is uh, I, I love that field uh, and uh, I like the academic life and. And a lot of my love of mathematics stems from my love of games, uh, uh, because there is a uh, interesting relationships between the two. Um, and uh, uh, then, as a graduate student, uh, um, my game Magic uh, was published uh, and and was a, a, a hit that uh, went beyond any expectations, and uh, and that made it possible for me to pursue games uh, as a profession. And, uh, and that is what I, I did starting in uh, uh, 93, 94. Yeah, that's uh, such an awesome story, and um, I think many people know how you, um, yeah, how you designed Magic and uh, what a big of a success it, it became. Um, but when was the time when you really started to also look into into digital games, and uh, maybe what was the reason to start looking into digital games as well? Well, uh, almost immediately we were interested in making a digital version of Magic. Um, I was uh, very interested in. Comp computer games uh, all through that time, but uh, um, uh, didn't have the capability really of designing them. Um, and uh, uh, just, just because I, I, I could program, but not really well enough. And, uh, and, uh, and so when I was in a position where I was a, uh, uh, in, in the profession and, and working with wizards, I, I had all these resources and was able to think about that more seriously. And one of the first things we wanted to do was make a uh, digital version of Magic. Um, and we realized early uh, that that the design of Magic was such that it, it presented real challenges making a uh, digital translation. And, uh, and that was something we struggled with uh, quite, a, quite a long time. Um, and, uh, uh, but uh, so from that, from that time, and that's, you know, the early 90s, maybe, maybe 94, 95, um, uh, I've been uh, designing card games, uh, physical card games, often with that in mind, that, uh, that if I want it to be made digital, I should uh, do it a little differently than Magic. And, uh, um, and I've been uh, designing digital games uh, 
just in order to do things which I can't do with cards. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's that's uh, the origin of my digital game design. Very interesting. So what kind of challenges uh, have there been when, with regards to, to Magic? Um, I know that there was a, an early game, I think it was called Chandala or so? Chandala, um, yeah, yeah. Chandala, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, it was actually working quite fine as a um, play against um, an AI version of the game. Um, but then I had the feeling that Magic somehow struggled for a long time to be translated into the digital world. Um, I think it's way better now with um, uh, with Magic Arena around or so. But um, yeah, other games that were um, yeah especially designed for the digital space like Hearthstone or Legend of Runeterra or Artifact also, um, I think they had it much easier to get into the digital world. So um, you already mentioned that it was some kind of struggles there and challenges. So could you maybe elaborate a little bit more what these challenges actually were? Sure. There's a, a, a number of them, uh, but the but the one that's closest to the surface and that I often think about is uh, is um, how players' turns are divided up. Uh, so with Magic, uh, it was constructed so that you could play a lot of your cards any time during your opponent's turn, and that is was surprisingly painful. Uh, when translated literally to uh, to uh, a card game or to a digital game, um, and and so to uh, illustrate, uh, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, it's, it's it's easy to uh, illustrate that in uh, because if you if you take that uh, the game of magic in in um, when we're playing with paper, your turn might be uh, I play a monster. I, I, sorry, I play a. Uh, uh, a mountain, and then I uh, tap my mountain, and I play a goblin. Um, with uh, with the, li the the literal digital translation of magic, um, there like had to be the opportunity at the beginning of the turn before you played the land for me to play a lightning bolt on you, for example. Uh, so I had to pass. Uh, then you played the mountain, and then there has to be a chance for me to play a lightning bolt and then uh and then so i have to pass and then you play the the, the goblin and, and again and of course this is just the first turn right or the second turn or something uh but late on later on it becomes you know the more you do the more uh steps that i can interrupt you now in real life this isn't much this isn't an issue right i, I can tell you to stop when you need to stop or or i need to think about something um but uh when playing uh mediated by computer it's it's a big issue um and and uh when we first began thinking about how to solve this uh, uh a lot of the solutions which jumped to mind really didn't work very well for example uh there's a lot of times where i don't have a lightning bolt so we can just have the computer pass uh for me and then the game flows very very quickly but then my opponent knows I don't have a lightning bolt because the game is passing, or, you know, is, is, is going fast and not pausing for my interrupts. Now, in real life, I might tip my hand that I have a lightning bolt because I tell you to stop, but I could be bluffing, and, uh, and that's my choice in any way. In, in any case, I could uh, uh, play it close, uh, uh, I could play it very secretively and perhaps uh, pass up the, uh, a good opportunity to play it in a disruptive manner uh, just because I want to keep it secret for the future. Um, 
and uh, but again, that the player has agency in that rather than the computer tipping their hand. Um, so uh, I, I would say that is the main issue. And if you look at a lot of the very uh, successful uh, digital games uh, that are currently around, like Hearthstone or uh, um, yet yeah, uh, uh, Eternal, uh, they they uh, deal with this in a number of different ways. Uh, some of them make the game more real time, um, uh, which isn't uh, isn't necessarily appealing to the way you know the, the people who got into the paper game in the first place. Uh, other ones uh, like Hearthstone are very uh, restrictive about what you can do during your opponent's turn, and instead they make the turns very short, as short as they can get away with, so you don't get bored. Uh, but at the same time don't allow you to do anything during your opponent's turn. Um, and, uh, and, and I, you know, I think uh, either of those solutions is, is fine. Uh, uh, it, it will appeal to different people in different ways. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. So when, you, when it comes to, um, when you start designing a physical game, a physical card game nowadays, so do you take these learnings already into account because you, you think it might be translated into digital world some, sometime in the future? So do you kind of have um, other uh, player interaction that you implement right away from the beginning? Uh, yes, I almost always think about it. Uh, I don't um, uh, restrict it. Uh, for a paper game, if I think if I think my paper game is going to be better f with a more interactive uh, methodology, uh, then I will put that in. However, um, um, all else being equal, I'm going to try to make it be translatable to the digital realm easily. And uh, and there's a lot of ways to do that. You can be uh, um, You can make it so that you can interrupt uh, the other person's turn at, at very precise moments. Uh, and, and so there's one interruption uh, each turn where the computer gives me an opportunity, for example. And that's much less disruptive than the original magic, uh, where you know there were like 30 moments during the turn where it could be interrupted. Um, and uh, But uh, uh, also, I, I think if you can, it's just stronger game design. Uh, because even though with uh, magic it works uh, well for people who know what they're doing and they like that freedom, um, technically, uh, um, you know, the game, if the game were designed with that in mind, uh, it could be stronger. And, and, and I think they've made changes to the game over the years, which brings it closer to something where there's less opportunities for reaction. Um, And uh, uh, one of the really important observations uh, that I made uh, uh, a while ago was there were people who, who thought you really need to be able to do something on the other person's turn in order for it to get the, the same feeling as magic, the same feeling of interactivity and responding. Um, and I uh, don't think that's true at all. Uh, The, it took me a while to be able to uh, characterize it exactly, uh, but I think the very important thing for a card game uh, is that if I can see your hand, I would play differently. Um, and, and if that's true, 
then you don't need to do anything during the other person's turn. Um, and uh, and that's not that's not always true in a lot of games. A lot of games I can see your hand and it doesn't change how I'm going to play. Uh, and sometimes that reactive moment in magic is an illusion. It's not really a part of the game. Uh, so, so what I mean there is uh, it could be that uh, there's a, a, an important card that I'm going to play and I'm worried you might have a counterspell. So, so I play my card and you counter it. That feels interactive. Uh, but it's very possible that it wasn't really interactive because uh, it, it's very possible that, what, what, that if I had looked at your hand and saw the counterspell there, I would have still played that card because I need to get out of your hand anyway. You've got it, right? So, uh, so there's a lot of times where you're going to save it for that particular card, and I'm going to have to play it just to get rid of the counterspell. Maybe I'll be able to you know, get you with the next card. Um, and so that's an example of something which feels interactive, but it really isn't. Now, there's a lot of genuine interactivity in Magic. Uh, that, that's just sometimes, sometimes it feels like it is, and it isn't actually. Um, and in a game where you take turns... Uh, um, if I look at your hand and that would change how I play, then, then without that information, I'm going to make a play. And on your turn, you're going to do something which uh, takes advantage of the fact that I couldn't see your hand. And that is just as legitimate a reaction as a real-time reaction in Magic. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting to hear that from you because um, you mentioned that it is um, one one possibility is to yeah reduce the um, number of um, interactions you have with another player during a turn to maybe let's say one or so. Yep. Because that's actually exactly what we make with our game. It's called Mindbug, and whenever an, there's only one interaction, and that's when an opponent plays a card, you have the chance to. Uh, activate one of your mind bugs um, which then steals the card so you get the card instead of your opponent Aha. that's the only interaction in the game and um, it actually translates it wasn't planned in the beginning but it actually translates very nice into the digital world because it's the only interaction in the uh, in the opponent's turn and um, yeah it allows us to um, yeah to to, to 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 pursue the game also in the digital world without too much too much complexity yeah that sounds like a Yeah, that sounds like a, a very a reasonable solution. There's a lot of uh, design space there, uh, and and uh, I learned a lot about a lot of that after Magic was designed. I you know I'd never conceived when it was designed that it was going to be uh, the success it was, and that it was going to be digital. And uh, had I thought about that, I might have designed it differently. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, had I thought about it, I probably wouldn't have been uh, experienced enough to know what the issues were until you know i tried to do it for years and years i think you thought of quite enough when you created magic so uh, <laughs> otherwise it wouldn't have been that success that it was or is um yeah so um pretty good job there um <laughs> anything anything else that you um um yeah consider already in an early design phase when you when you create a, a physical game um, that might impact impact a later uh, digital implementation something like i don't know game length number of players or downtime per player per turn or so any any other of those uh, core aspects of a game that you that you consider specifically for future uh, digital implementation the reactions during another person's turn uh is 
the main one. Um, other ones uh, I will consider if I know it's going to be a digital game. Um, so, uh, but but otherwise, I, I probably won't change my game too much for it because uh, they're more minor. But yeah, uh, game uh, turn length is is it's more important uh, digitally that it be short, uh, uh, especially if you go down this route of limited reactions during the other person's turn. Um, and, uh, and, that, and that's just because, and, and in particular, when you get into more players. Uh, so if you have a four-player game and each person's turn is one minute, and you have nothing you can do during that time, that sounds perfectly reasonable. And for a board game, it is. But it's kind of boring just waiting uh, you know, for three minutes till you can do something, uh, in, especially if there's no real planning ahead, um, uh, which is often the case in games. So, for instance, a game like Scrabble, that's not as much of an issue because I can be thinking about all sorts of ways to anagram my hand. Uh, but but there's a lot of games where I'm really not going to start thinking about my turn until it's my turn. Um, and, uh, and yeah, at, at the computer, it's... Uh, uh, this is this is more um, this is more expensive for the players than sitting around a table. Sitting around a table while people take a one minute turn is really no issue. Uh, but but at a computer, it's it's more important. So I will uh, try to keep the uh, turn length down uh, more aggressively, uh, and you can do that uh, either by making the whole turn shorter, or you could do it uh, uh, using um, techniques like like you said, where where you have this point in the other person's turn where you can do something, so that effectively reduces the length of the turn, um, uh, or at least distributes it a little more. And uh, yeah, so that that's pretty important. Are there any specific, let's say, card effects or so that you um, yeah that you always wanted to? To implement in one of your physical games um, doesn't need to be magic or so, uh, but ne it never really worked out due to the, um, let's say, the limitations of the real world or the, um, I don't know, the uh, the capability of us humans doing math or so um, that you that you um, wanted to implement in a digital in a digital game or implement it later in a digital game. Yes, uh, yeah, there are a lot of uh, effects which are possible in the digital world which. Uh are uh, too awkward to use physically. Um, and uh, when I first started working on digital games, um, I pursued those more aggressively than I do now. Um, I still think there's a lot of magic to be had there, but you have to be very clever with it. And the reason is, uh, uh, is because um, uh, oftentimes I didn't realize at the beginning what you were sacrificing to get that effect. So, for instance, uh, uh, you can do whatever math you like, and since the player doesn't have to do it, the card does it, uh, uh, then uh, that should be in bounds. Well, kind of, but there is something you lose when the player doesn't really understand what's going on, or you know they have to think a long time about what the effect is. Um, and unless that's part of your intent, uh, that really undermines the value of the mechanic you're putting in. Um, so I, I find it really good practice to try to hew close to what you can do with paper games because that's something people can hold in their head. That said, uh, there is a lot of really crazy fun stuff you can do. And, and, and really, uh, Hearthstone 
has uh, is the master of that. Um, they, uh, I, I don't think they began out being the master of it, but over the years they've become more and more uh, uh, proficient at it. So, so in Hearthstone, you can play these cards, for example, that will replace your entire deck with other cards, or uh, or put three random cards from the universe into the in, in, into play, or you know, just all these wacky things, which uh, which uh, are really uh, you can't do with paper without you know having a big rule book and rolling lots of dice and spending a lot of time uh but are very natural with uh the digital game and uh and it, you know there's like there was that crazy one where you play it and it casts a random spell for every spell you've cast for the in the previous in the game and and it's so wacky players understand uh, most of the time that they're not intended to really understand all the 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 possibilities of the spell they're supposed to uh, uh, play it and experience it and and then over time sort of get some sense of what its value is what its risks are and rewards and and so and so they managed to push the game uh, and the card effects into an area which uh, which is pretty fun so uh, that's an example of a sort of of using what the computer has to offer uh, in a way which doesn't feel just worse than making a complicated card, you know, making a, making a paper game card, which everybody understands. Yeah. Thank you for that great example, because um, it goes directly into my next question. And that is about um, randomness in digital card games, because uh, the example you mentioned and also many other implementations, um, at least in Hearthstone, for example, uh, um, they they add more randomness to the game that you would actually um, have in a, in a physical card game. For example, selecting a, a random spell from, from your deck or out at the game. Also, these, these effects you often don't, um, don't see in, um, in, in physical games. So what is, what is your opinion regarding that, um, that added randomness in digital games? Um, because you mentioned it's difficult for them or people don't understand really uh, or, or can... Um, can say the outcome in, in, in advance or so. Um, do you consider this something um, something positive or something negative? Also, with regards to um, strategic play, uh, I, I think I think it uh, it depends who's playing it and how it's presented. Um, the uh, there is uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings about um, randomness in games. Uh, um, These days, there's a, a, a cultural uh, bias uh, against certain types of randomness, um, and uh, and that that don't necessarily reflect the strategic depth of the game, um, and uh, and that that really doesn't have anything to do with digital play. It's completely independent of digital play, but uh, uh, somehow. Uh, digital play exacerbates it because uh, whatever randomness is there, there's a there's a further disconnect by the player that they don't really understand what's going on. So, for example, if you roll a die and something happens on a one, uh, you understand it, right? You can in internalize it. If you hit a button in a digital game and something sometimes happens, uh, you don't really know what's going on. Uh, if it says it's happening 10% of the time, then 
we've all seen this, people start complaining, that's not 10% of the time, that's happening every time, or that's happening just when the computer wants it to happen, or, you know, people, people are very distrustful about the results that the computer gives them. Um, and then if there's, uh, if there's just a black box, then, then they feel like they don't understand that. So there's, there's sort of two issues, uh, I guess. Uh, one is, uh, how do you use randomness in games, which is uh, 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 completely de- independent of uh, digital? And then how do you uh, share with the player what's going on so they understand it? Um, and uh, Or they understand they're not supposed to know it. Like in uh, the Hearthstone example, um, uh, it's just, you know, it, it's things are just so wacky that, uh, that they sort of, they sort of know often, they're so wacky. They, they understand that uh, that uh, uh, it's it's something that you have to just experiment with a lot and get a, a sense of, uh, rather than uh, look at a chart and uh, do calculations. Yeah, I think one good example that I I think I heard it from from you somewhere else uh, before is um, King of Tokyo, for example, where you also have a lot of randomness because you roll the dice, but. Um, You you have them you have the randomness before you make the decision yeah um, and by that you then later still are in control of what you make out of the the, the random result by I don't know choosing um, what you do with the um, with the um, with the energy or so or by um, deciding which kind of um, dice you want to re-roll and so on instead of uh, yeah just I let's say I play a card and that then a random effect happens and I have to live with it. So I think this is a, a good example of um, how you present the, the, the randomness to the player and give and add it uh, with something that, uh, that still allows the player to make some choices. Uh, yeah. yeah, there are different ways to make the player feel like they have agency, although uh, a lot of the times uh, that's uh, illusionary, uh, which doesn't mean it's not important. Um, but... Uh, um, There's 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 a lot of a lot of games which uh, are excellent, in my opinion, which uh, you know in in today's game client climate I do not think they would uh, um, they would make it. Um, so uh, you know, for example, backgammon. Um, backgammon is you're rolling dice every turn, um, and and there's much much better rolls that you can get because when you roll doubles. It, it, it counts uh, uh, twice the effect and uh, um, but uh, and, and, and the first time two people sat down to play this if this was the first time they played it these days you just know that if they're sort of serious mainstream gamers they're going to play it and one person's going to roll more doubles and they're going to say well this game is terrible uh, I, I won just because I rolled the doubles or I lost because my opponent rolled the doubles or, or whatever and then they wouldn't play it again in in it but but in reality this game has a lot of skill and uh and the the better player is going to win a lot of the time even i mean i don't just, i don't just mean that they're going to win like 60 of the time if you know what you're doing in backgammon and your opponent does not know what you're going to do do what you're doing um the person who knows what they're doing may not win every time but they will win very close to every time It takes a long time for the other person to get the skill to be able to, to, to get into that game. And that's not even 
getting to the point where you start talking about the doubling cube, where the amount of skill sort of skyrockets again. Uh, uh, and, and, and so uh, people's patience for that sort of luck is very low these days, which is, you know, it, it's, it's just fine uh, in, in that, in that some, for some people, that's not what they're looking for. And, but but uh, for uh, a lot of people, if they gave it a chance and they didn't look at the, the sort of the norms which are being pushed on them, uh, I think they would find that uh, a, a pretty exciting uh, style of game to play. I, I agree. I agree. But um, you also have to look for um, to, to look what the what the audience or the um, the players are actually looking for, and yeah, sometimes that means uh, you I don't know need to reduce uh, the randomness or at least um, I don't know present it in a clever way. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 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 just an interesting thing which I. Uh, thought of recently, though, is that in reaction to that, a lot of times play, uh, designers reduce, for example, the number of dice rolls in the game. Uh, so, so they'll have dice, but you know they'll only roll it once a turn, or you know once uh, every five turns, or something like that, and and thereby reduce the amount of luck. But as a matter of fact, often when you do that, it increases the luck. Uh, um, If you if you roll dice, uh, you know, 50 times during the course of the game, uh, you're going to get probabilistically a a, a, a a pretty a pretty regular curve uh, of results which are distributed throughout the game. But if you roll it twice in the game, and somebody who rolls two ones is just basically out of the game, uh, then it's much worse. So there's this uh, misunderstanding that that Oh, uh, a lot of people don't like luck, but we really need to th mix things up a little bit. We'll just put in a little. So you put in a couple dice rolls. That is often exactly, you know, unless it's done in the right way, that, that can often do exactly the opposite of what you want. Yeah, I, I agree with you. So yeah. um, let's, let's, let's come back to a little bit to the, um, to the digital side of games. Um, Because I have, a, I have a question with regards to long-term player motivation. So for many of the business models of digital games, it is very important to, to keep the long-term motivation of players. Often because uh, the game is financed by the sale of in-game content, such as uh, skins or additional card packs or whatsoever. Um, and while this can be somehow similar in trading card games in the physical world as well, It is a bit different compared to traditional board games, I would say, because um, there you you buy a, um, a board game once um, and maybe one or two expansions later on, but you don't really spend money on on it on a very regular basis, um, and you probably also don't play the game every day. But with mobile games or PC games, many players really have the chance to to play the games way more often than they could play the, the physical version of the game. Um, and I would be interested to, to understand how you, um, how or if you consider this in, in your game design, that the people play the games more often. So do you take replayability already into account? Um, and um, also, how do you, how do you um, yeah, try to create this long-term uh, player motivation? 
in in your games wow uh i well um a lot of the games i am uh, uh tasked to make in the digital area um have that replayability sort of built in because uh my gaming specialty uh you know king of tokyo and uh bunny kingdom and all notwithstanding uh my specialty is these massively modular games and that's what uh uh, the designer, the the publishers, the digital publishers are mostly interested in, um, and massively modular games, uh, games like Magic, uh, where uh, players can have, where the game can be sort of modified in in lots and lots of different ways, and uh, and it's very easy to come out with extra content and uh, and uh, um, that 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 these these games lend themselves very well to that. Uh, uh, replayability. Um, that's uh, not necessarily what uh, in a in a in a perfect world where I could design whatever I liked digitally. Um, that's not necessarily where I would always spend my time. However, because I think uh, the same considerations that you make with a paper game with uh, 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 the paper game experience uh, is perfectly good online. It's just this, uh, the financial needs because they're more expensive to maintain uh, or the cultural needs because that's what is expected that you need to get people to pay money on a regular basis uh, is it's because that's demanded online that, that we think about that. Uh, so, so what I mean is uh, their uh, ticket to ride, for example, it's an excellent paper game. There's a digital version it's an excellent digital version. Uh, and, and I could play both of them, uh, uh, endlessly. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so it's, uh, I find it kind of a shame that, uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, digital development is pushed down this, uh, this, uh, uh, road of, of, of massive, either they're being massively modular and buying all this uh, extra game content or skinned isn't so bad except it, it really to a game player it feels weird to be buying skins uh, you really uh, sort of uh, somebody who's from the traditional game world like myself uh, wants to uh, pay a fair price for a game design and then be able to play that game design um, and uh, and and uh, I'm willing to support a company by making it so whatever my my pieces look a little different, but it just uh, seems a little forced. Um, anyway, this this is a it's it, that's a big topic, so I guess I really haven't answered. I just sort of uh, uh, talked about it a little bit, but uh, the uh, um, but I I know that that uh, that I have uh, um, been very interested in a lot of designs which are um, hard to get in publishers interested because of this revenue model issue, even though they would make uh, good paper games if somehow you could make them into a paper game. You, you mentioned that most of your designs are really massively modular games. Um, and you also mentioned... Um, uh, 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 yeah? uh, uh, 
uh, that's that's not exactly what I, I said. I said that my what I'm known for is my massively modular designs. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, I, I design lots of games which aren't massively modular, uh, but uh, but yeah, what's what's of interest to online publishers because of this topic which you brought up, and and often paper publishers is the massively modular games. Okay, good. Um, so you also mentioned Bunny Bunny Kingdom, for example. Yeah. Um, and um, there are many aspects about about uh, this game and other games that you have created that I. I'm really interested in, and then that is the um, the initial card distribution phase for those games, or maybe not initial, but the card distribution in general. Um, for example, in Bunny Kingdom or Carnival of Monsters, you have uh, kind of some kind of drafting. Yeah. Um, in Spynet, you have some kind of um, also drafting, but it's uh, it's a Winston draft. That's right. Um, and um, I would also consider, I don't know, the whole TCG model for Magic in the very beginning, a new and um, novel um, yeah, distribution mechanic because you were buying packs and building a deck out of that. And also the unique deck idea for Keyforge is also kind of uh, another way of distributing the available card stock into smaller pieces so that uh, players can play with that randomized version of it. Yeah. So... Um, that is something that I'm really interested in, these uh, distribution phases or mechanics. Um, and I would just be interested uh, why why you are also seem to be very interested in, in, in that aspect of games because you are um, yeah, innovating in that area quite a bit. And um, yeah, I was just wondering what, what, what you really like about it and why you are focusing on it in so many games. Well, I guess, I guess uh, one reason is because with uh, ma Magic was such a, a powerful vehicle for uh, different ways to play. When Magic was first published, uh, I had no concept that people would uh, get so many cards that they could choose the deck they wanted to play completely freely. Um, uh, I, I thought that the rarity of the cards and, uh, and people's, uh, people, just would, people would buy just a few cards and trade, or that they would draft. Uh, and uh, or they would just buy one deck and play with that, um, and and but but as it came out, uh, people played it in this other way, and and there were all these other ways that were possible to play it. Uh, for instance, we had leagues, uh, and we had, we played all sorts of drafts. Like uh, the Winston draft was one of them. Uh, I had a bunch of other drafts: a Monte Carlo draft. I had uh, the uh, back draft. Uh, 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 there was a period where I was doing different types of drafts every week, um, and and each of each of these are different formats of Magic, but equally they're different uh, game design concepts which could be applied to other games that specialized on them. And so, uh, drafting in Magic, uh, the booster style draft, is a very flexible tool that. Uh, um, uh, I don't know that I thought of applying it to another game until there was a there was a game called uh, Fairy Tale, uh, which uh, used that draft and and I might have been thinking about it before that, but uh, but I remember being pretty impressed with their implementation of it there, and and so after that I, I thought, oh yeah, we should uh, uh, definitely try to make some games which uh, are built around this format of card distribution, as, as you put it. Um, And and then from my uh, uh, 
um, game uh, publication history. It looks like uh, it looks like I was really into draft games for a long time. Um, as a matter of fact, I was only into them for a while, but it took so long for them to get published that uh, that uh, that I got a backlog of them. I was just trying to get one that the publishers would be interested in, uh, because uh, before Seven Wonders, which uh, sort of really put it on the map. Um, I was pitching these draft games and they weren't interested. Then Seven Wonders came out and I thought, okay, now they're going to be interested. And and they weren't interested because somebody had already done Seven Wonders. Uh, and and so and so this was very frustrating. So I started to make all these different types of draft games in order to show the variety that could have, that, that that there could be. And then uh, a few years later, there was a point where people were thinking about it a little differently. And, you know, and suddenly uh, several publishers were interested in all these different designs and they all got bought up. And, uh, and then that's why there's so many out there. But typically, if I if I did one draft game and it got purchased, then that would be enough for me. I'd go on to something else. Okay, would you be looking for other ways of distributing cards? So can can we expect some more innovation in this area from you? Oh, yes. Uh, probably. Um, I'm thinking about the games I'm doing now as a uh, um, as a representation of that. Uh, I've come back to it as you've observed time and time again. But but uh, but it's not um, something that I do exclusively. Certainly, the uh, uh, I'm thinking about what, what I've got going now, and I, I'm working on one that is sort of similar to a Winston draft. Um, and then, uh, and then I've got some, uh, games that are kind of deck building games, but, uh, a little bit different, um, and deck building games, of course, uh, in the style of, uh, Dominion or Ascension, uh, sort of bring their own sort of distribution mechanics into play. So that's really an extension of what you're talking about, uh, uh exploring that space in a different way. So, yeah, I, th I think so. Okay. I think. I'm looking, looking forward to it. So there's there's one other question that really is uh, comes off uh, out of my own curiosity, um, and um, it's not really related to, to to digital implementations. Also, it's um, about multiplayer combat in card games, in strategy card games. And um, in my past, I really tried again and again to implement good multiplayer combat for strategy strategy card games, but I always found it extremely challenging. Um, and never really found a solution that fully convinced me. Um, either the tactical depth was somehow missing or the game really degenerated too fast into just political decisions and discussions. So um, with King of Tokyo, for example, you have some kind of multiplayer game that relies on a, I would say, King of the Hill mechanic. Yes. Um, and if we if we take, I don't know, Carnival of Monsters on the other side, that is a game that focuses more on hidden information and um, and point scoring, uh, but it doesn't really uh, feature direct combat between the players. So yep. um, what is your approach when it comes to designing multiplayer games, maybe especially card games, that also um, have some kind of conflict and especially uh, co some kind of combat? Oh, that's a, uh, uh, an excellent question, uh, which, uh, yeah, I could talk for ages on. Um, I'm, I'm very, uh, I think a lot about the interaction in games, um, the level of interaction. And uh, 
Um, there are games which are yeah certainly uh, very passive, um, like uh, say Yahtzee, um, where the only interaction in Yahtzee is uh, is reacting is is deciding how much to press your luck based on what your opponent has done previously, and that's it. Uh, which I don't begrudge it. I think that's an excellent game. And uh, um, uh, but uh, but then there's another level of interaction, uh, which is uh, sort of very commonly seen in the uh, um, in the Euro market, where it's indirect but more interactive than Yahtzee. Uh, I, I call those uh, passive passive aggressive games, um, and, uh, uh, and 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 I would put. Uh, Certainly, a monster, a carnival of monsters in that category, uh, where there's no direct interaction. It's a, sort of I call it. A, yeah, I would consider that passive aggressive. Um, and then there, and then there's the uh, level where you're, uh, where you're much more directly uh, interacting with the opponent, um, uh, and and then you have to, uh, as you say, uh, you have to consider how the politics are going to work, and I, I find. Uh, even though I played a lot of these when I was young, uh, I, I, I grew to find the politics in these games of who do I affect uh, to be sort of tedious and uh, um, and painful. Yeah, exactly. And, Me as well. Yeah. And I think I think I don't really think I understood that consciously until you know until the early '90s when Magic was out. Uh, we, we, uh, and and I was trying to make a multi-person version of that, and I realized that that one of the things that bothered me with these games was that uh, um, with the, the games that were too political is that the the sense of getting ahead wasn't was in some ways an illusion. Um, so so uh, if I could get ahead and the other two people could tear me down, then I wasn't really ahead. Uh, and so then and so then. Uh, when that effect of tearing the other people down is too strong, it becomes something where the game itself doesn't matter once you understand the game. It's just a matter of who's tearing who down, um, which can be a very interesting game, but it's always the same game um, once you understand the framework it's in. And and so and so I began to look at a lot of the games I really liked in my in my youth that had a lot of interaction. And those are not done very much these days because those were very aggressive interaction, but they were done in such a way that your choices of who to aggress against uh, were limited or chaotic enough that it didn't feel like you were picking on somebody and you, were, you weren't playing that political game as much. So an example of that is Titan. Um, have you ever played the game Titan? No, I didn't. So, so Titan uh, is, yeah, it's a... a uh, early '80s, and it's a this this crazy war game um, where where the players it's a free for all. Players are building up armies of these monsters and fighting each other, and it's an Avalon Hill game. You know, so it's a pretty pretty simple for an Avalon Hill game, but pretty complicated by today's standards. Um, and 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 it was very aggressive because you would attack these other players, and then you would have these battles, but you didn't have a lot of control over who you attacked. And when you attacked somebody, they weren't necessarily torn down. They were sometimes more powerful because of the attack. And the result was it was very interactive, uh, but it, it didn't feel very political. 
Um, and so anyway, this, uh, this, this brings us around to, you know, things like uh, King of Tokyo. King of Tokyo was explicitly, I was thinking, Yahtzee is an excellent game. How would we make it more interactive? Um, and, and I wanted to make a, a, a way for people to attack each other, but reduce that, you know, keep the amount of choice of who you attack low enough that, uh, um, that, uh, that it didn't break these sort of boundaries of, uh, uh, so it became a political game. And so, so, uh, yeah, there were a lot of people in the early days who wanted in King of Tokyo for there to be cards you buy where it's like, I buy this card, I do three damage to the monster of your choice. Those, I really dislike those sort of cards and games. When I look at a game, one of the very first things I look at is, uh, is are there cards which say, choose a player, that person suffers. And uh, that doesn't mean it's a bad game, uh, but but I'm going to look at it differently, and it's going to have to work hard to get past that. With okay, that sounds uh, like many games would fall into that category because many games have this uh, choose target player, and that player suffers. Yeah, I uh, I try not to put those in my games, um, and uh, so so for example, uh, I don't think I think for me those games are always better if uh, it's not choose target player but the target player with the most victory points suffers, for example, because uh, then I'm not choosing who to play it on. Uh, and as long as I'm not paying to do it, it's just something which I, you know, is, is it an advantage for me to play or not? Um, uh, but then the other people have, uh, you know, it's like they're, they're not necessarily discouraged from getting ahead because there's a lot more, that becomes a lot more interesting from, The other from the other players' points of view, because oftentimes the person who has the most victory points isn't necessarily the person who's winning. But if this card takes out this agency that I can choose who to play it against, then uh, then the person who's got the most victory points should just be sort of taking that into account that they're going to be a target of these cards, um, as opposed to the bad feelings you get in these games where I've got a card which can make somebody uh, suffer. And I don't do it against the person with the most obvious metric. They've got the most victory points, but I do it against somebody else because uh, I think they're actually winning. Um, then that's a very short leap to I do it to somebody else just because they annoy me more or uh, I do it to somebody else under the mistaken idea that they're actually winning. And people get into these arguments about that. If it just says do it against the person with the most victory points or do it to, against the person with whatever, the least monsters in play or whatever, whatever is the metric, that takes away that judgment of uh, which a lot of people uh, do like, but, but I find detracts from the, from the gameplay once you know it really well. Yeah, that's uh, that's really really good advice, and um, I mean, I could I could talk to you um, <laughs> probably the whole day about that topic, and um, uh, I would probably have uh, questions for the entire day, and you would have more <laughs> than enough answers for the entire day. But I want to be respectful with your time, um, so I would propose that we um, yeah that we come to an end. It's almost an hour now, and um, maybe one one last question. Um, in my audience, we have a lot of, uh, there are a lot of, uh, yeah, aspiring game designers. Um, some people already uh, have designed games, but uh, many are on their way of, uh, yeah, creating, designing their first game that they want to publish or get published. So uh, what would be one advice from, from you as an industry veteran um, to, to, to this uh, target group? What would be one advice that you would give them um, on their way? 
Well, I feel like uh, my veteran advice for uh, getting published is uh, has is probably stale uh, uh, because the uh, the market for uh, the things which people publishers are looking for and the things which Kickstarter Kickstarter is responding to just it's a crazy crazy different world than when I started. And there's just uh, so, so much you're competing against as far as uh, getting people's attention. Um, but one thing sort of never gets old, which is is to uh, play a lot of different games um, and pay attention to the games that you don't like, but that are popular. And if you can uh, figure out why people like them and perhaps uh, uh, understand that a little better, uh, then only good things can happen. Um, you can, for example, learn how to incorporate it into your games in such a way that you do actually like it. Or you might learn to like it yourself and suddenly you understand a whole branch of the market better. Um, there, There is uh, no uh, game... There, there, there's no amount of gameplay of other game designs that I think is wasted uh, if you do it mindfully and uh, and uh, try to learn from it. Thank you very much um, for this great advice. Um, I, I uh, have to say thank you to you, Richard, for your time and um, this great podcast episode. And I also have to say sorry to many of uh, the listeners because, uh, yeah, a lot of you submitted questions uh, to Richard and I, th I think I still have a list of 50, 50 yeah. open questions or so. So sorry to everyone uh, whose question I wasn't able to uh, to bring to the show today. Um, yeah, but well, I hope you you nevertheless got a lot of a uh, lot of uh, yeah knowledge out of this episode. Well, I'd be happy to uh, to to visit again uh, sometime in the future. Maybe we'll get to some more of those. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm looking looking forward to it. So if you enjoyed listening to this episode, you might also be interested to um, join our Game Design Mastermind group um, because we are a group of aspiring game designers and um, we help each other on, on our journey because we are all on the same journey and you do not have to make the same mistakes uh, that uh, yeah countless game designers have done before you. So um, if you're interested, we would be very happy to have you on board on our um, yeah, game design mastermind group. Um, and if you want to know what, what that actually is, here is the short introduction of uh, yeah, what we do um, and what we stand for and um, yeah, why you should join us. The overall goal of um, our mastermind group really is to grow as a game designer and achieve a success. And we strongly believe that we can help each other on this journey. Um, what do we do? We do um, brainstorming sessions together to overcome yeah, a specific design hurdle or so. But we also playtest our games each other. So um, once a month we, we meet for a playtesting session. And um, yeah, you can bring your own game and get the feedback of, um, of other game designers and um, players. And you can play test other players' games and um, yeah, follow the advice of Richard um, by by learning from 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 uh, from other games and um, learning more about the industry. But we also um, yeah, we share educational content like uh, interesting articles, uh, podcasts, videos, or, or other insights and uh, resources for um, yeah for for game designers. Um, 
But the maybe the most important thing that we do is we keep each other accountable because you know game most of us um, are doing game design as a um, as a hobby or a side hustle or so and yeah sometimes you can lose consistency and if you have a small group of people who can um, yeah can keep you accountable and will ask you um, yeah, how's your process what ha what have you done last week or so that can be really really helpful. Um, and that's how we support each other. And um, yeah, we challenge each other also to set strong goals for, for the next week, for the upcoming weeks. Um, and yeah, we keep each other accountable to also accomplish those goals. And that is not possible in a super, super huge group of people. So uh, we try to make it a little bit more personal. So um, we want to know the games the other people in our groups um, are working on so that we can actually care about their goals and yeah, uh, have the knowledge to, to keep them accountable um, and give them a constant feedback during their journey. So that's that's how we are structured. We have a um, we are a large group of people, a few hundred people um, that are in this uh, in this mastermind groups. Um, but then we divide each other into smaller groups of let's say uh, six to eight people or so um, that meet regularly. That can be weekly. That can be biweekly. That can be monthly, depending on the group. Um, but we have some constant touch points to um, yeah to keep track of what the others are doing, and um, there will be sessions with uh, with the entire group of um, uh, the the um, in the entire group of hundreds of game designers. But most of the time, you will be um, working with your very specific mastermind group, and we had a lot of success with that in the past, and um, have a lot of groups uh, um, meeting on a regular basis. But there is also some fluctuation in the in those groups. Sometimes uh, people um, yeah lose interest of game design or so and um, drop off, or um, maybe they, they they pause for a little while. Um, and um, yeah, we also want to want to help more game designers on their journey. So if you want to join one of those mastermind groups, we are currently uh, recruiting new new um, game designers that want to join us. Um, and if you are interested. Please, um, yeah, please come to the NerdLab uh, Game Design Mastermind groups. You can um, find them in the link in the show notes or you can find them by visiting the website nerdlikeaboss.com slash mastermind. nerdlikeaboss.com slash mastermind. I would be very happy to, um, yeah, to learn more about you and your personal game design journey so that we can um, yeah, maybe play your game in the future in one of our playtesting sessions. Okay, so um, yeah, thank you, Richard. And um, to all the listeners, thank you very much for listening. And until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye, everyone. 